Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. In seconds, Kate Gordon will talk about China, climate, and the Paris Accords. And then Nancy McLean will talk about the right stealth war and democracy, with special attention to the economist James Buchanan. When Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords, there was a lot of speculation what it would do to what is generously called American leadership in the world, and China's role as a possible successor to a fading U.S., Here to sort that out for us is Kate Gordon. She's a senior advisor to the Paulson Institute, where she spends much of her time studying Chinese environmental policy and its international ramifications. Kate Gordon. Welcome, Kate. So right after Trump announced withdrawal from the Paris Accords, uh, there was a lot of speculation that this was ceding leadership uh, on uh, global climate policy and even in the economic realm as well uh, to China. Uh, What do you make of that? China usually plays a, a fairly long game. And this isn't, it isn't as if they kind of turned on a dime with that announcement. Uh, the country's been focused on climate and energy uh, policy from an economic perspective, actually for a while. The 13th five-year plan specifically decouples economic growth and energy um, intensity, which is a big deal for an industrial country. And it also lays out some pretty significant policy plays on climate, like a price on carbon at the national level, and a huge amount of new investment into renewable energy and all kinds of efficiency measures. So essentially, the Paris Agreement helped China formalize goals that were already in place, and this announcement just highlights those goals that are already in place. What's driving the Chinese interest in this? A bunch of things. Part of it is environmental. Uh, the air And in China, air quality is the real driver on environmental issues. Um, there, obviously, you look at pictures of Beijing, and, and it, it really is that bad. They're, Beijing companies are, hard, are not attracting talent. They, people are leaving. There's a brain drain going on because of the air quality. So that's a big part of it, and solutions to that. But also sea level rise, which is a real issue in China. The, a huge percent of the population lives near the coastlines, and the sea level rise issues from climate change are big there. And then on the economic side, which I think is actually the real driver for them, China's trying to become less of an industrial country, more of a service-based country, and that does lower their emissions, but they're also doing an enormous amount of infrastructure and energy building in other countries, right? So they own all these means of production, but they're putting them in other countries to help with their own air quality issues and their own kind of shift to service economies. So it's part of a big plan. Now, in a lot of American discourse, China was the bad guy on climate, and uh, they provided us an excuse for not doing anything. Well, you know, as long as the Chinese are polluting, why do we need to do anything? Uh, But uh, (laughs) obviously the Chinese have uh, changed tack, right? They have. They're doing a lot. And, you know, sometimes people will counter that and say, oh, they're still building however many coal plants. But if you look at Chinese coal plants, even, they're just built at a much higher standard than ours. They're building less than they were. They're shutting down a lot of old ones, and they're building them at a very high standard. So... It's not ideal they're still using coal, but essentially what they've done is leapfrogged a whole bunch of technology phases, and they're really using the best-in-class technology on everything they're doing, whether it's wind or solar or uh, coal. That is not to say that they are awesome on everything. I mean, they're still financing a huge amount of dirtier coal in other countries, and I think when you look at China, especially these days, you can't just look at what they're doing domestically. They are such a big player in terms of sort of international development and really imperial economic imperialism. They're such a big player that you have to look at their investments too. Well, they're also doing that with what, agricultural land uh, abroad as well? Yeah, agricultural land. Um, grid is really interesting. So China State Grid is the largest utility in the world. It's a state-owned utility in northern China. And State Grid, for instance, owns the entire grid and operates the entire grid of the Philippines. And in a number of other countries, they have pieces of the grid as well. And that's that's a big deal. I mean, that's physical infrastructure and connectivity, right? And so that's you're seeing that in a number of different sectors. It's it's pretty striking. And how are they creating that electricity, cleanly or dirtily? <laughs> it depends on the country. In China, the balance is still coal, right? Because coal is cheap and abundant. They also buy coal from us as well as from Australia. But they're tilting the balance within within China to more renewable sources. There's a, a big goal there. In other countries, it just really depends on the country leadership. But China's not controlling those policies in other countries or not, not relying on them. 
There was a picture of the New York Times the other day uh, adorning an article uh, about the topic, but uh, it was uh, of uh, uh, solar panels floating in a lake, which was created by a collapsed coal mine. And you know that, that uh, certainly tells a lot of stories there, uh, the use of coal, but then uh, a creative repurposing of the space with uh, solar panels of Chinese manufacture. How real is that tale? Is that something that just, uh, you know, good for a journalistic sensation, or is there something really happening there? I think that's real. There is a lot of attention, I think, being paid, and even some in this country, but particularly there and in, in Europe, to repurposing to this energy transition, right? So we talk a lot about what the clean energy transition looks like. There's a, a need to decarbonize our, our economy globally. That's what the Paris Agreement was about. There's a lot of pieces to that. Certainly big investments in renewables are one of them, but so is ramping down carbon-based fuels, right? And coal is a big challenge because Developing coal, mining coal, has a serious environmental impact, right? You can only use those sites for certain things. So there's been a, been a big interest um, actually here, the EPA, over the last five to ten years, and then in China as well, in repurposing some of those industrial sites that aren't usable for a bunch of other things for renewable energy because it's still industrial and it's not – people aren't living on it and you're not drinking the water and you're not, you know, you're not sort of growing food on it, but you're repurposing for something purely industrial, but that's low carbon. So I think that kind of thing is happening. You actually also see here um, mountaintop removal sites in West Virginia. There's a big push to get some of those to become wind farms because the mountains have really good wind resources and now the mountaintops are flat. So they become a wind site. So it's not crazy. It's not crazy. It's not happening at the scale it should be, but, um, but it is happening. And what about the Chinese uh, push into uh, manufacturing the infrastructure for renewables, solar panels and, you know, wind turbines and such? Is that, uh, how big a deal is that? Huge. That is a huge deal. Just looking at solar, China's solar manufacturing capacity has increased 10 times in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, China was not a huge player in solar manufacturing. Now, six of the top 10 solar manufacturers in the world are Chinese. So it's a very, very big deal. And I think it's important to kind of separate out all the things they're doing. So some of what they're doing, honestly, is, is what got us to be a manufacturing powerhouse back, back last century. Some of it is good government practices. They are investing an enormous amount in R&D. They're creating a market internally. So they're basically creating sort of requirements for people to use renewables. And they're creating an internal market. And for China, that's huge. It's a big market. And then they're doing a bunch of infrastructure development, whether that's workforce training or physical infrastructure. They're using a lot of semiconductor uh, manufacturing infrastructure to do the panels. But they're also doing a bunch of other things that people are, are having issues with, and this is why there's WTO cases being filed. Uh, they, they have Because they have a government-owned bank system, they can artificially impose price controls pretty easily. They can get state-owned banks to give no-interest loans, for instance. Uh, they can get state companies to give them land for free. They can... Uh, depress prices in response to policy changes such that they can completely change the global market and other practices that are sort of WTO illegal. So I think the big question is separating out what are they doing that is, frankly, what we should be doing to support this emerging industry, and what are they doing that's actually WTO illegal? And frankly, if it's illegal, we should be going after it. I mean, I, there's a big debate about this. You can spin that two ways. They're subsidizing the emergence of something that should be subsidized. Uh, that sounds bad under WTO rules, but isn't it good policy? Yeah, I mean, we do it a little bit too, right? I mean, we do it through the, we have an investment tax credit and a production tax credit for, for renewables. Sure, the subsidy part, there's ways to do that that actually are not illegal under the WTO, but there, but the, and, and there are exceptions for environmental systems or for things that have good social purposes. I guess what I worry about is sort of the thin edge of the wedge. You know, if uh, the argument for the environmental community on this has been, well, solar is good for the world because it's environmentally good, and so we should sort of turn a blind eye to some of the practices that make it as cheap as it is. And my worry about that is that, you know, how many things are you turning a blind eye to then? Do you start turning a blind eye to the environmental standards that are being used in the manufacturer? Do you start turning a blind eye to labor standards? I think there's a reason for global trade standards, and we shouldn't completely throw them out the window just because we like what people are making. For a change of pace, let's turn to domestic politics. Uh, 
Trump pulling out of the Paris Accords it received a surprising amount of criticism coming from um, corporate America, but even the oil industry itself. Uh, you know, Lloyd Blankfein's first tweet was uh, a critique of uh, withdrawing from the Paris Accords. I believe his fourth or fifth uh, just came the other day when he was uh, visiting China and he was in, uh, struck by the the infrastructure there. Uh, so, you know, Trump's not getting support from the Goldman Sachs of the world, uh, but we even heard People like you know Exxon and, and <laughs> the former employer of the Secretary of State uh, and uh, um, Shell uh, criticizing the withdrawal. Now, some people, my more radical environmental friends, think this is proof that the Paris Accords were toothless, uh, and all, that's why corporate America supports them. But on the other hand, I don't see a groundswell coming from the elite of society for the Trump-style approach to the environment. How do you explain where he's coming from? Where is the appeal? Uh, what's the political base for this kind of, of, uh, of policy that Trump is embracing? Just on the, on the business community support for the Paris Agreement, I think there's two pieces to that. I actually think it's true that the agreement was non-binding, and it, but it also set up a fairly flexible set of flexible framework for, for countries to reach uh, emissions levels. It did set up an emissions goal, level goal, which is good. I think a lot of companies probably liked that it wasn't too prescriptive, but also uh, I do think that companies think it's important to have some kind of a framework for reducing emissions because that's something to plan around. So that's important. The other side that's more optimistic about companies is, and, and this is like, I've spent like three to four years now talking to a lot of companies and investors about climate change. We, we really have seen a change in the last couple of years. Climate impacts, physical climate impacts are real and they're becoming more prevalent in a lot of the world, including in a lot of places where people manufacture and have supply chains. And we're now seeing companies actually do operational planning to try to deal with climate impacts and to try to think about bringing those numbers down. That's new. That's, that did not happen four or five years ago. So companies are not completely just making this up. They actually are paying attention in oil and gas more than almost anyone. They have massive, expensive, place-based assets that are very vulnerable to climate impacts. So they've been doing climate modeling and scenario planning for like 10 years. They've been ahead of the curve. So is big ag. So I think it's, it's a real thing. How do I explain Trump's position on this? I, you know, Doug, I actually think, I hate to say this, but I actually think this was just a, an incredibly non-reasoned decision. I actually think he came back from the G7 after a bunch of Europeans lectured him and, and felt, and that was an ego blow. I think it was, it feels to me like a lashing out at the rest of the world. The way the speech was written, the changes that were supposedly made to the speech at the last minute, it feels like he was just mad and felt like, as he said, the rest of the world was laughing at him. That's really horrifying if that's the reason for the withdrawal, but it, it just given what I know about the internal discussions leading up to that moment, it may actually be true. Then what about Charles Koch, whose money comes from oil? Well, you know, I think from a Koch perspective, many of the investors in oil and gas are short-term investors, and they are looking at the market, and they want the market to keep growing. And you want the market to keep growing for the next, you know, if you're looking at a five- to ten-year time horizon, then you want people to use as much fossil fuels as possible, right, if that's where you're invested. So, you know, there's a very big difference between invest, kind of investors with a short time horizon versus long-term investors like pension funds versus the companies themselves that are actually having to put the cash on the ground, you know, the cash in hand to build these long-term assets that are like, I mean, these capital projects are like 50, 60-year projects. I think you're seeing kind of a breakdown of the different types of financial interests and how they're all playing this game. How much concern do you see among big oil, you know, big carbon, uh, that uh, they're going to have a stranded asset problem, that eventually all these carbon assets will become worthless as the world changes, and uh, they're actually thinking and planning for that. How much of that is going on? A little bit of that is going on. I think it's happening a little with the bigger companies that are doing, for instance, new drilling that's pretty high risk and very expensive. That kind of unconventional drilling really depends on higher prices and demand. Um, but it's a, it's a tough game, right, Doug? I mean, because, like, frankly, if demand for fossil fuels goes down, the prices may go down, and then we'd see less unconventional drilling, but we'd see more conventional drilling. So it just it, it's hard to know what will actually happen. But in my experience talking to these companies and investors, stranded assets are not the first thing they talk about. They talk much more often about sea level rise and storms and systems coming offline. And then they also talk about unconventional is being harder and harder to drill for because the prices are too low. 
And then finally, what do you think the impact of withdrawal from Paris is going to have on U.S. carbon emissions? We've seen a lot of cities and states uh, say they want to stick with the program. Uh, some corporations also, you know, even News Corp claims to be carbon neutral now. Uh, so is this going to make a difference? Uh, how much of a difference will it make? It's not probably going to make a huge difference in terms of what we expected to see from our initial commitments under Paris. So we did this nationally determined contribution, which is essentially the way companies do commitments under the agreement. And ours relied on the Clean Power Plan. It relied on states and cities and companies. The Clean Power Plan is out the door, but a lot of utilities across the country are already planning around it because, frankly, coal is on its way out. I mean, the market Natural gas has displaced coal in the market. That's not a policy change. That's just a reality. A lot of utilities are already planning for that future, regardless of the regulation not being here. States and cities are stepping up. I think they may do more than they would have done before because of the withdrawal, and companies are stepping up. Even under our original agreement, we would have only made it to like 65 to 70 percent of the emissions cuts we needed. So I think we're probably still going to make it to 65 or 70 percent. That was Kate Gordon, who is a senior advisor to the Paulson Institute, a think tank founded by former Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, housed at the University of Chicago. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Paris 1919 by John Cale. I have no idea what the lyrics mean, but they are evocative of secret meetings in the City of Light. Next, the right's plans to throttle democracy. Nancy McLean, a historian at Duke, is just out with a book called Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America from Viking. The subtitle sounds sensational, but as you'll hear from the interview, it's not really. While the book covers a lot of territory, its star is James Buchanan, an economist who devised a lot of the thinking behind current right-wing strategy. Much of that work was done under the patronage of Charles Koch. Buchanan was born in Tennessee in 1919. He went from that unfashionable corner of the world onto graduate school at the University of Chicago, then and now the Vatican of right-wing economics. I had to cut the bits of the interview where Nancy McLean discusses that background, including his grandfather's stint as a populist politician in his home state, for reasons of time. So in this edited version, we dive right into Buchanan's landing in Chicago. He went from Chicago to the University of Virginia when the state was in the midst of leading the massive resistance to the Supreme Court order to desegregate their schools. Nancy McLean. Uh, Buchanan gets to Chicago, uh, which at the time was, you know, people think of Chicago as Milton Friedman's uh, playground, but at the time it was dominated by Frank Knight, right? So uh, t tell us about Frank Knight and the, the department that he dominated. Well, Frank Knight was also uh, someone who was, you know, not from an elite family, from a farm family, and that was something that he and Buchanan bonded over. You know, they talked about it was Knight who supplied the line, better than plowing, you know, describing an academic career. Uh, and so he was widely reputed to be a very good mentor, a kind of easygoing man, a man who questioned all certainties. Uh, and he was a highly regarded uh, figure in, you know, among the circles that founded the Mont Pelerin Society um, to promote the free society. Um, and he was actually the only American among the three founders. So Knight was a really significant figure, but uh, he stopped writing uh, at a certain point, kind of soon after he advised Buchanan and some others, and uh, Friedman was up and coming at that point, but Friedman was just kind of the new kid on the block when when Buchanan attended the University of Chicago. And also a more difficult personality. 
very different personality, very different personality. You know, Friedman was kind of ever sunny, but also in your face, showing his brilliance. And Buchanan was much more retiring and, and kind of dark, I think, in his temperament and sensibilities. And he really seemed to find uh, Friedman to be an irritant. And they also had different ways of looking at things. You know, Friedman's economics was much more kind of positive, empirical economics, and Buchanan's was much more beholden to kind of an older school of political economy. And he was not interested in the kind of mathematical emphasis that he found in so much contemporary economic. Yeah. So how did he make his way professionally in this world where uh, his politics were out of fashion, but also uh, with his distaste for mathematical economics and a, a pre preference for old style, you know, Smith and Ricardo prose writing? How did he make his way into the profession at that, in his early years? Well, first of all, he got to University of Chicago by accident. He'd gone to University of Tennessee for a master's degree, and he was told by an advisor there who was in political science that Chicago was a great place to go, and the advisor painted this great picture, and so Buchanan went off, not really knowing much about the Department of Economics. But he was kind of alienated uh, from the beginning, I think, by the kind of work that they did. And he also, interestingly, was on a scholarship that was reserved for people who would go back to the South after they got their degree. So he knew he was heading for a Southern institution, uh, and he chose the field of public finance, which you know was also, I think, a wise career choice for someone going back to the South. And the kind of vision that he had and the kind of economics uh, that he chose were very popular in the South, if not in other large departments in the country. So he fit right in in Virginia, where Senator Harry Byrd was the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, a champion of pay-as-you-go budgets, outraged at any red ink. Um, and Buchanan's first book was Public Principles of Public Debt. And that would have endeared him to Harry Byrd had Harry Byrd read the book, which I have no evidence that he did. But I do know that Byrd was a fan of uh, Hayek's. Yeah, Virginia was sort of an oddball in the South in that it really never had much of a populist tradition. Those had this, these aristocratic pretensions and a view of itself as better than the rest of the South. And uh, this, how did Buchanan fit in with that kind of culture? Yeah, that is interesting because, again, he did style himself as populist, and Virginia was probably the least populist part of the South. It was absolutely the most oligarchical you know, state in the country um, and, and had these very deep traditions of elite control of politics. I did not see Buchanan complaining about that, and he very much embraced a Virginia identity, uh, and he came at a particular moment um, in 1956 when the fight against Brown versus Board of Education was was on in earnest, and Virginia was actually leading the wider South in how to make a constitutional case. Buchanan learned a lot from coming there at that moment. As you point out, too, that the, the uh, Virginia kept its, its racial and social order uh, intact, mostly through legal means, manipulations, and, and not as the rest of the South did with the Klan. So what, what did Buchanan learn from that? The importance of rules would be the short answer. Uh, and I think this is also, you know, one of those moments where uh, we could all benefit from pivoting the focus of our attention a little. You know, so much of the drama of the civil rights movement and the profound struggles for democracy went on in the Mississippi Delta. And so understandably, we've had a lot of, you know, books about that and a lot of thought about that. But in some ways, I think for understanding the post-Civil Rights Act uh, South and the post-Voting Rights Act South, I think places like Virginia are much more informative. And in Virginia, um, there was not the same tradition of violence to suppress dissent. It was much more uh, controlled through, again, these, these sophisticated legal rules, the way that they made their poll tax work, for example, kept just about everybody from the polls. And they designed a system that was effective enough that they, they you know, I wouldn't say that they never had violence. And I think people who have done close research on Virginia history say that there's a certain mythology about the Virginia way uh, that exaggerates its gentility um, and ignores its its unseemly edges. But uh, but it was definitely a very different culture from Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama. And as you said, uh, Buchanan arrived in Virginia just as Brown versus Board of Education got handed down. And uh, the Virginia elite was really up in arms about this. Buchanan had an interesting response to it. Uh, he developed, you know, what we now think of as school choice theory. And it's interesting that the intellectual roots of all this stuff that is now just so pervasive in the world of education was to preserve segregated schools of Virginia. So could you talk about that environment and, and, and Buchanan's contribution to it? 
absolutely. And it, that's uh, interesting, too, um, perhaps to point out that I didn't start out this research looking at Buchanan. I had never heard of him when I started to do the research. I actually had learned about uh, massive resistance and the school shutdowns that went on in Virginia, um, and in particular in Prince Edward County. Uh, the schools were shut for five years. The public schools were shut. Public resources were taken from those public schools, shifted into white private schools, and black students were denied any formal education for five years, except that supplied by the church and sympathetic allies from elsewhere. Uh, so I was intrigued by that and began to look into that story and then learned that Milton Friedman had written his first um, manifesto, you could say, for school vouchers in the midst of that. It was published in 1955, and the news was coming up from the South in the national, even the international press, that Southern uh, segregationists were threatening to shut down public education in, if they had to desegregate. So Friedman knew this. I mean, it was out there, and he wrote this manifesto. In 55. So at first I was looking at him because his manifesto also came into play in Virginia and there were people, you know, connected with the Chamber of Commerce in Virginia and so forth that were picking up Friedman's ideas and disseminating them in Virginia. And I was intrigued by that. But then I kept coming across this Buchanan guy that I had not heard about before. And one uh, intervention of his that particularly shocked me uh, came in 1959. And in 1959, there had just been a massive mobilization of white moderate parents against the school closures mandated by massive resistance that locked out over 10,000 white kids because those were the schools being sued to desegregate. Um, so this massive mobilization of parents had happened in the fall and then courts at two levels, the state court and the federal court, uh, outlawed those uh, those school closures. Um, and it was at that point that Buchanan and his partner, Warren Nutter, in, in this new center he'd just set up at Virginia, it was at that point that, uh, that Buchanan entered the public debate, first privately, he wrote to Virginia legislators, uh, and then publicly when he didn't succeed in persuading them, but he made a case for kind of full-on privatization, um, not invoking race, but talking in very much the terms that we see now uh, in the discussion about schools, where people talk about the dangers of government monopoly and the value of choice and parental control and competition and all of that. So I thought, who is this guy? <laughs> you know? uh, just pause for a moment to emphasize the point that Opposition to uh, desegregation in Virginia was not so much driven by uh, popular sentiment, popular white sentiment, but by the Virginia lead, right? That was where the, the driving force was coming from. I wouldn't, um, you know, go so far as to say that Virginia whites at the time embraced the Brown decision, but what you did see in the immediate response to Brown was a kind of willingness to accept it, um, you know, saying that, look, this is the Supreme Court, you know, we we have to obey the law, we may not like it, but we must make some adjustments, and, you know, there was a very token plan, you know, ways of, of, of hedging in different ways, but the initial response was to accept it, and it was only after really sustained agitation by James Jackson Kilpatrick, later a noto noted conservative author, um, who was very much trying to please uh, Harry Byrd and his organization in Virginia. It was only after that very sustained agitation in which Kilpatrick revived John C. Calhoun's thinking about the Constitution in order to fight against Brown. It was only after that that you saw a massive resistance. And when that massive resistance came, it was only voted for in the uh, General Assembly in Virginia. Virginia because the, the um, legislature was so gerrymandered. Had the uh, General Assembly been allotted representation according to population, massive resistance would not have succeeded. And then back to the theories that, uh, that uh, Buchanan was developing, uh, how does you know, his, what later became public choice theory and all that, how does this apply to the, the school system as he, his, as he saw it then? What he did that was new, uh, for which he was ultimately awarded the Nobel Prize, was to take his economic toolkit from the University of Chicago and apply that to public decision-making, so to government actors, to social movement actors, et cetera, and to, he modeled them, you know, he, he, he analyzed them as individuals, not as members of groups, say, the working class or African-Americans or what have you, but he wanted to think about everyone as being a single individual acting in a rational manner to advance his or her own self-interest. And from that, he came up with what is sometimes called public choice economics and his own particular variant of that, um, Virginia political economy. 
that was his distinctive contribution. And the reason that would be well relevant in the school's context is he would, for example, you know, he's one of the first people to uh, present people involved in education as though they were purely self-seeking. So one of the um, spit words, I guess you could say, that was used in Virginia at the time was educrats, right? That teachers and people in education schools and principals and all these people who are involved in public education, they don't really care about kids. What they care about is, you know, their own fiefdoms. Um, And so Buchanan develops that kind of thinking in that context and then applies it more generally. And now you see, even you know, lots of us don't recognize the code, but once you know his ideas, you can see that that's be, what's being applied to, say, climate scientists, to say that these people don't really care about the science. They're really just interested in gravy ladling from government, you know, in getting grants and such that will keep them going. I mean, it's really, it's really, it's quite ugly and pernicious stuff, but it's, it's really, it's very prevalent. It's funny that people use this kind of language who are looking to protect their own fiefdoms, <laughs> continuing to run Virginia as their private plantation. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think also it's worth um, uh, noting that for these people in this this tradition, um, there is no exploitation in the economy. You know, it doesn't matter how much power you have, the interactions that you have, like say that Charles Koch might have with his workers, those are voluntary interactions because those workers could choose to go elsewhere. Um, So they've chosen this situation, whereas they present any interaction with government as being necessarily coercive of, you know, the minority who might not accept that. And if we fast forward a few years, uh, Buchanan finds himself at UCLA for a bit, a place he didn't really like very much, during uh, the late 60s when the campuses were exploding. And he applied some of his thinking about schools to the universities too, right? Everybody's getting subbed for nothing, and we need to make this expensive, right? Yeah, he wrote a book called Academia and Anarchy that came out in 1969, and exactly he applied uh, his variant of economic thought to what was happening on campuses, and he concluded that all the incentives were perverse, and it was these incentives that were producing the unruliness on campus. So being Buchanan, he paid no attention to the real issues that people were raising in terms of racial exclusion and discrimination on campuses, uh, you know, in, in surrounding communities, or anger about the war in Vietnam, and he just said, no, these young people are getting a free education, and that's why they don't care if they disrupt it and destroy it, and what we should do is make them pay full cost tuition, you know, change the system of governance in universities so that the faculty don't run the show, that, you know, give the donors more power, et cetera. So he actually wrote a whole manifesto for the transformation of public higher education that is now very much in play in the states that are controlled uh, by the Republican Party, like my own state of North Carolina, uh, you know, and and many others, they are very much applying the kinds of ideas that he developed in that 1969 book, which I may add one small thing, the Koch, uh, Koch at that point, his major philanthropy was something called the Center for Independent Education, and they reprinted a kind of short version of Buchanan's 1969 book in order to get it out to more people so that that relationship between uh, between Buchanan and uh, the Koch kind of uh, family and network begins, as far as I've been able to tell, in 1969. A student Nancy McLean, professor of history and public policy at Duke, and author of Democracy in Chains, just out from Viking. And you write quite a bit about the, uh, Charles Koch. Uh, what's his relation to Buchanan over the decades? I believe they met, you know, right, or they, you know, they, they first got in course, you know, his, one organization, person's organization got in touch with the others. Uh, his, his chief of philanthropy then was a man named George Pearson, but so he was in uh, fairly frequent touch with Buchanan uh, at that point. And then uh, Charles Koch joined the Mont Pelerine Society in 1970, which is the organization founded by uh, Hayek and von Mises and Frank Knight, and I'm sure known to a lot of your listeners who are deep into, you know, who know a lot about this this history. Um, so Koch joined that in 1970. And then interestingly, he really used the Mont Pelerine Society newsletter to advertise all of his various efforts over the years. I found lots of Koch stuff there. And I think the reason nobody saw it before is because we weren't paying attention to Koch until just recently. But um, anyway, Koch becomes involved in that. And then uh, when he sets up the 
what became the Cato Institute. Uh, he they called on Buchanan uh, for help, and he uh, led a few seminars and events for them. Uh, participated in those, uh, but then um, Koch was still sort of searching, I would say, and funding many different scholars and different organizations, and even experimenting with running, uh, you know, the Libertarian Party candidate against um, Ronald Reagan in 1980. Uh, so there's still a lot of churning going on. But through this whole period, Koch, as he put it later, was really searching for the ideas that would get him what he wanted. He described it as a technology. He had three degrees from MIT and thanks very much as an engineer. But he was looking for this technology that could bring him this, this new world that he sought. And by the late 1990s, 1997 in particular, he decided that he had found that at George Mason and he gave the first uh, $10 million contribution and began investing in a big way in uh, George Mason. And he certainly was um, believing that he had found the technology that he needed at George Mason and began to build it up to become the core base camp, core academic base camp of his effort that it is now. Yeah, George Mason, which started what pretty much as a storefront <laughs> and then uh, ended up uh, as this, uh, this powerhouse of right-wing thought generation. Right. And Buchanan was really their first marquee hire. You know, it came 25 years after it was founded, essentially in this, you know, old dairy patch in uh, Fairfax County. And it's really an interesting model, too, I think, of the corporate university and how the corporate university works, because these... But nominally public, right? Yes, nominally public. Um, but these developers uh, in Fairfax County wanted to, you know, build up the area, and they knew that to do that, they needed to have a strong university, not least because they wanted to go to the federal government and get a lot of outsourced contracts. Uh, so George Mason played a crucial role in that through a series of very entrepreneurial presidents, and the hiring of James Buchanan in uh, 1982 really furthered the project because within a few years, he won the Nobel Prize in Economic Science, and that after that, things really took off uh, for them. But Buchanan becomes the anchor there, and then a guy named Henry Manny, who had long been promoting law and economics, who was also a co-grantee, who actually, by the early 1990s, he ran these training seminars, these summer seminars for judges, and by the early 90s, uh, Henry Manny had trained uh, two-fifths of federal judges in the United States. So that's how significant the reach was. Anyway, he got um, Buchanan got Henry Manny hired uh, as dean at the law school at George Mason. And then so between the two of them, they really built up the place. And uh, Koch also brought his favored philanthropy, something called the Institute for Humane Studies, where he would, that he used to hunt for talent. Uh, Koch brought that too. So ever since then, George Mason has been a really crucial part of their operations. You read about the, the modes of operation of uh, both Koch and Buchanan, who had a lot in common. Uh, one, that they're both playing a really long game. An acquaintance of mine who met Koch in the 70s, he told him that this, this is a project of 40 years. And, and Buchanan obviously also had a very long-term planning horizon, as did you know, uh, um, Hayek and von Mises when they, they put Montpellier together. But they also used subterfuge and deviousness uh, in, because they came to despair of democracy. They, you know, they figured that what their vision of economic liberty was incompatible with democracy, they, so they had to lie. Social security is something of a case study of how they operate. Could you lay out just what their mode of approach to, to uh, privatizing social security, which is their ultimate goal, but they're using a lot of subterfuge to get there? Right. I'm so glad that you, you raised that, Doug, because I think that's a really instructive case because, you know, what these folks will say is, well, we have every right to argue for our ideas. And I would say, absolutely. You know, we all do. But the thing is, they're not being honest with even their own followers about what they're up to. And I think when you point to the example of Social Security in the 1980s, you're, you're really getting at, you know, the nub of it, of a really important um, illustrative example. And uh, this also, I think, is worth noting. Um, they they take up the Cato Institute and Buchanan take up uh, Social Security privatization right after the Pinochet government in Chile privatized uh, Social Security and Cato later hires the person, uh, Sebastian Piñera, who ran that effort. So they're really deeply invested in this. But Buchanan said at the time, he said, look, you know, he was kind of essentially tutoring the, the operatives and he said there is no support for Social Security, you know, for what they were trying to do for Social, to social Security in 
at any constituency in American politics. And he goes through it. He's like, not the old or the young or blacks or whites or men, women or men, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's absolutely no support for this agenda for Social Security. But then instead of saying, okay, well, so I guess we shouldn't do it. <laughs> People seem to like it. It's a good system and it works. Instead, he said, here's what you need to do in order to undermine Social Security, given that nobody wants it to change at this point. And he actually went through point for point in a kind of um, uh, sequential way about how you could break up that coalition. And the first part of it was to say, um, don't uh, try to do anything anything that would affect existing claimants, right? People who are already collecting their Social Security or about to, you don't want to mess with them because they're paying the most attention. And this is all vintage public choice in terms of you know, looking at who's paying attention and, and you know, how, to, how to change the rules. But anyway, so don't you know, pay, as in his terms, pay off the existing claims. Don't even mess with that. But then start to pay attention to the people who are coming up, who are about to become of age and start looking. And basically he was saying, you know, sow doubts about the uh, viability of the system, you know, whether it's solvent, whether it can make it, um, and make it so that they start to doubt its viability and they still they'll become more interested, right, in private pensions and things like that. Then he also talked about breaking up the coalition, the wider coalition that supported Social Security and, you know, the labor movement had been crucial in defending Social Security at various points. So this cause really goes after labor unions to knock them uh, out of things. And then another interesting element of this plan was to target young people. And I think this is really interesting because it also shows us what a fiction it is to think of these people as conservative, you know, when they're so radical in their vision. It's just that it's a rightist radical vision and very destructive. Uh, but they actually tried, and they're still trying to turn young people against older people on the grounds that older people, saying that older people are effectively sucking up all the resources uh, from younger people. And so they actually try to stimulate a kind of class conflict, <laughs> you could say, um, in turning young people against older people. And it hasn't really worked, but that hasn't stopped them for, from trying for almost 30 years. But there's a pseudo-egalitarian appeal to it that some people fall for. Yes, yes. Yes, that, that, that is uh, true. Do you want to say more about what you... But I'm also thinking uh, of the way they, they try to... Um, they're, they're trying to like, remove support also from the upper reaches of society to turn it into a, uh, a means-tested welfare program. Right. So Buchanan was also clear about that, yes. And he, so he thought another, another constituency that should be targeted, and this is a place I think where liberals trip up, is to say, you know, yes, let's, let's tax, the, tax the rich to make it viable. And, you know, this cause is saying, basically following that up with, see, they're coming after you. This isn't really Social Security. It isn't an insurance system. It's a transfer program. They're exploiting you, and you need to fight it. So, I mean, he did have a very astute understanding of the world of politics, but it was, you know, kind of a diabolical one, too, that would think about, you know, in what ways can you divide people? In what ways can you sow doubt and distrust? In what ways can you turn people against the very notion of a common good. It's a very chilling school of thought, and there were actually a few really good critiques in uh, around the time that Buchanan won the Nobel Prize of people just saying, you know, look, like this, this A, is not a good description of how politics actually works, but B, is really dangerous in terms of undermining the norms of public service and public commitment and the notion that we're all at least somehow trying to get to uh, the, the common good. And, you know, I think we see in the age of Trump, um, you know, I wouldn't pin it all on Buchanan, certainly, but I think the causes uh, that have been informed by his ideas and funded by Charles Koch relentlessly push that message that gets people to suspect others and to believe that those in need or who are trying to address problems like climate change and, and global warming, that, that they're really just out to raid your your wallet. Um, and, you know, if you have people in that state, it really makes it hard to have a civil conversation about how do we as a society best go forward. Well, the epigraph to your book, I can't remember who said it, but is that the whole point of public choice economics is to end the political we. Yes. 
yeah, a Canadian uh, author in this tradition said that. Yeah, he said the public choice revolution signals the death knell of the political way. I mean, if you and it's you know just think about that for a moment. Like people who would you know sort of rub their hands together and say, "Great, you know, we'll never have labor labor unions or civil rights groups or you know uh, groups like the AARP or the League of Conservation Voters." You know, all of those are seen as a problem by this tradition. Our capacity to come together in the kind of we the people way to persuade others of our ideas and you know and 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 get government to do things that need to be done that's seen as a problem by these people that needs to be wiped out. And Buchanan very much saw himself as uh, creating a kind of Humpty Dumpty-like situation, you know, where that if you if you manage to push through this massive change, you want to make it so they can never put it back together again. It's that stark a vision. Milton Friedman's grandson, Patry, uh, had a manifesto in a Cato magazine of some years ago in which he very explicitly said that libertarianism is deeply unpopular. It could never win in any kind of democratic systems. Therefore, we need to abandon democracy. And he made that very explicit. These guys were more discreet about that, but that is really the underlying philosophy of this Buchanan and Koch crowd, isn't it? It is absolutely the philosophy, yes, that Koch was trying to find a way to come toward this system. And as you said, it's never been popular. And, you know, if you look at this, the history of this movement, it is kind of like the nut, a nutty fringe. I mean, they were talking about conquering islands or planets or, you know, various strange sites where they could just be among their own kind and be away from all the rest of us that they saw as exploiters. Um, and needless to say, that was not a popular vision. And so what you see developing by the late 1970s is among some quarters, and Buchanan was really in the lead in this, uh, a vision that said, yeah, um, democracy is antithetical to capitalism, to the full and free flourishing of capitalism. So what we must do is enchain democracy. And and Buchanan's um, language for that was to enchain Leviathan. You know, he always referred to to government in, in those terms. But basically, you know, he made clear more than once that he was really talking about democracy. And certainly he was that was what he was doing when he advised uh, Pinochet's constitution uh, in 1980, was to make it so that even super majorities of the people could not achieve the things together that people had done in democracies over the 20th century. So, yeah, absolutely. And you see more and more of that in this libertarian milieu and that kind of hedge fund world of like Peter Thiel, who's, you know, been a guest at George Mason on Tyler Cohen's program and, and others, you know, being very clear that, yeah, you know, choosing between democracy and capitalism is no question for them that they would go for capitalism. And of course, this is, you know, the reasoning behind voter suppression and all that sort of thing that goes on. Absolutely. And I, and that's one one thing that I think, um, you know, I really wanted to convey to readers in this book, too, particularly as somebody who's been in North Carolina, um, you know, watching the voter suppression unfold. And I think it's important for us to distinguish between what is legally actionable and what is kind of going on. I mean, I don't think you could do this stuff, you know, and suppress votes in the way that, say, the North Carolina General Assembly did if you respected African-Americans as having full citizenship and equal dignity and right to a say-so, you know, as as you, the people who are doing this. But at the same time, I think they are, this is not just some kind of atavistic racism. I mean, these are people with a very conscious policy design that they want to keep people away from the polls who might vote for a different kind of political economy than the people promoting the voter suppression would. And so I'd really like to see us get more of that into the discussion in terms of a very calculated strategy that is animating all this. You know, similarly with Planned Parenthood, um, you know, clearly there are many misogynists, you know, in the ranks of the right, and that helps them to get the votes they need. But for the people who are really coming up with a strategy, they have made clear in print that they hate Planned Parenthood because it's so successful at getting government funds for public health purposes writ large. It's really important to understand where all this comes from, what the strategy is, and what the end game is, uh, so that people can decide what to make of it and, you know, what, if anything, to do about it. People who think like this control about about two-thirds of the states, both houses of Congress, and it's hard to say who controls Trump, but uh, certainly they have their tentacles there as well. So these guys are in quite uh, a, a, a strong political position, even though their agenda by their own admission is not necessarily very popular. 
absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that, that you pointed out there, too, uh, is that the, the state-level control has proceeded so rapidly. And another thing that concerns me, you know, in, in working on this and following this network and actually living in one of its laboratories is that the national media, you know, do tend to focus so much on affairs in Washington. And now, you know, everyone is transfixed by Trump. But while people are paying attention to Trump, this agenda is moving right through in the states. And there are now 25 states that have trifecta GOP control, you know, both houses of the legislature and the governorship. Now, Democrats have six of those, and they've lost many in recent years. And I don't think that is really getting through to Democrats in Washington to understand that the states are being transformed in such a way that it's creating almost a tourniquet um, for things that can be done at the national level. You know, certainly that's what we saw with Medicare expansion and in uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, But also, these people are actually building toward a constitutional convention. We haven't had one of those since 1787. You know, and people who are in the coastal cities may laugh at that, but, but they're getting much closer. They don't have that many more states to go. Um, and if you actually get a constitutional convention, uh, you know, all bets are off. There really are no rules except on how you get people there. So I think this is a very, very serious, fundamental threat to our democracy. And as a historian, I've never seen anything like it before. So I think it's really important that we, we pay attention to the state level as well as the federal level. That was Nancy McLean, a professor of history and public policy at Duke and author of Democracy in Chains, just out from Viking. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, an old behind-the-news chestnut, We Are All Bourgeois Now, by the 1980s British Marxist indie pop band McCarthy. Till next week, bye. <laughs>